Welcome to this third jazz podcast, a continuation of the jazz series I seem to be stuck in <laughs> and enjoying it. It'll be one more jazz uh, podcast after this because I know I won't be able to cover all the way through the 60s in this one. So good morning or good afternoon or good evening or good twilight to you. My hours are pretty much from about 11 a.m. till 4 or 5 in the morning. I like the morning hours. It's quiet, no interruptions, and the air smells better. It's sort of uh, what I call my zone. So everybody has their own zone. And if you're not in your zone right now, I'll try to get you there. A good step in that direction is Ben Webster. Uh, We started off the show with him. A great tenor man from the, uh, oh boy, 40s, 50s. The years are difficult because these guys played over decades with different groups, so this is not an exact science. What I've got to do here is um, I've got so much stuff to cover. If you want a, a complete history of jazz, by all means, please watch or buy the Ken Burns Jazz Series, which is excellent. What I'm doing here is uh, it's a combination of survey, comment, Gee, these are my favorites. I ask that you have no expectations. That said, if you expect a history of jazz, this ain't the place. This is the place for a handful of fantastically great jazz. You will hear that. I've mentioned my father a few times, Dad. Uh, Why? (laughs) Dad was a, a fanatic jazz musician. He played cornet and trumpet all the way from the 30s through the 60s when um, he lost his original teeth and if you play trumpet or know about playing trumpet you know that you need teeth to support the lips pressing against the mouthpiece of the trumpet and when he lost those he couldn't play trumpet anymore so he took a piano and taught himself piano which is amazing but the role of jazz as an influence in our family never wavered it was in the house constantly all the way through my high school years, through college, and when I was no longer living at home, it was there in their home. So my dad had three loves, baseball, jazz, and horse racing. This one is, of course, this program is about jazz. Anyway, that's the reason I mentioned dad a lot, because uh, he's a big influence on my life. Now, I don't play an instrument, except for conga drums. I have a good sense of rhythm. But uh, what dad did teach me is good from bad through years and years and years of of listening and pointing things out to me. And I learned a lot about, not about structure, but about the intricacies of their playing, their tone, rhythm, and beat. And I'll talk about that again. I think I mentioned beat in the last broadcast, but uh, let me mention it again. Two things. Two things. Tone and beat. First, beat. Okay, you hear people say, can you hear the beat? Well, that's ridiculous. You don't hear a beat. You feel a beat. It's there or it isn't. And uh, that doesn't mean it's some sort of abstract thing that's philosophical. You feel it. Of course people feel it. But you don't hear it. You can't hear a beat. Then there's tone. And this really comes out in, to me, in a tenor saxophone. When you hear the difference between Kenny G... And Ben Webster, we just played. The differences are readily apparent. Ben Webster has tone in his sax, and Kenny G sounds like he has the reed stuck in his nose instead of his mouth. you get the idea. Uh, That was not Ben Webster, that was Lester Young. And as someone is sure to point out, uh, Kenny G was playing an alto sax and uh, Lester Young is playing a tenor. I realize that, but the tone is still missing from Kenny G. It's it's just weak. It's kind of gutless. And that style became popular in the 80s with the advent of smooth jazz. Smooth jazz is something where there's nothing dynamic in it. It's kind of leveled out, no bumps, no dynamism. And that's the standard now for tenor sax playing, or for any kind of sax playing. I had a lot of trouble recording Kenny G, but uh, I made it. I smoked a cigarette and uh, drank some 
lemon tea and, and, and thought about snow and beautiful things that I like. Okay, since we're on uh, saxophone, I'll, I was going to do individual sax pieces. I think I'll just play a series of uh, great uh, tenor men. Okay, you'll hear in this order uh, Lester Young, who played with Count Basie before he left him in around 1940. Eddie Miller, who played with the Matty Matlock group, uh, Dixieland Jazz Band, which you heard on the first recording, first jazz show. And also, uh, he's in uh, a movie called Pete Kelly's Blues, which is kind of cool, Jack Webb uh, movie. And Matty Matlock's group plays in that, and he's with, with that group at the time. Then we have Coleman Hawkins, who started off with Fletcher Anderson way back in the 20s and played with him for a while. And then uh, kind of went off on his own, played with a whole bunch of groups. He, he got into bebop and made what is the first bebop recording in 1944 with uh, Dizzy Gillespie and some other people. I'll try to find that. I don't know if I can or not. Next is Johnny Hodges, who was the lead tenor man with the Duke Ellington Orchestra for a long time. And the last selection is Ben Webster, who played with Duke Ellington and then in the 40s with a whole bunch of people. He was the uh, tenor man on Cottontail, Duke Ellington's uh, recording, which we heard some of in the second show, number six. doesn't get any better than these guys with the addition of Zoot Sims who is one of my favorites he's more recent I'm going to play a little recording of his I Can't Get Started made famous of course by Bunny Berrigan which I played a lot of uh, in the last show Wasn't that nice? Nothing fancy there, just a, a beautiful tone. I heard Zoot Sims at a place called the Lake Buena Vista Village Jazz Lounge 
back in the uh, early 80s when Disney still had such a thing. They'd bring these great musicians down, uh, established older guys, and I got to hear all kinds of people. And Zoot Sims I heard a couple of times there. It was great. I was sitting right up in front, and I offered him a beer, and I sat on, a, on the stool in front of him. He said, uh, I'm sorry, young man, I'm not allowed to drink on the job. Anyway, that was my <laughs> interaction with the great Zoot Sims. For the remainder of the show, which will run up to an hour, I'm sure, I'm going to separate the sections into uh, groups, um, big bands, and then bands as separate from big bands. And I'm not going to do singers. I'm not going to do singers, even though that's a big part of jazz. You know, Billy Eckstein and Joe Williams and Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong and Julie London and Frank Sinatra. My main interest is in instrumental stuff and introducing you to perhaps some groups, bands, aren't familiar with. And the ones I mentioned to the singers, I'm pretty sure you're all familiar with. Let's hear some drums, and I'll focus on one player that everybody in the world knows, Gene Krupa. And he's probably the greatest, and I have a reason for saying that. And I'll demonstrate the difference between the overly praised Buddy Rich and the underestimated Gene Krupa. Everybody loves him, but they don't quite get it. When Krupa took a course on drums, he would develop what he was playing. When Buddy Rich takes a course, he shows off his technique, but it doesn't go anywhere. And the public loves it, of course, because they can identify technique and say, wow, what great technique. That's about as, as deep as they can get. Hey, do I sound like an elitist? Okay, I admit it, and I'm proud of it. <laughs> okay, here's, uh, I, I really, believe me, believe me, I tried to avoid playing this, but I, I, I had to come around to it with somebody sooner or later. Sing, 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 which Benny Goodman made incredibly popular at Carnegie Hall when he is, uh, was asked to play there with his band in 1938. And this is part of Krupa's solo on that. He's playing with a band and playing a song that everybody in the world knows at the time, but he's also developing something. He's playing along. It's like he's taking a course in relation to what's going on. He's not just like playing drums isolated someplace. Here's another little section that uh, just him playing around. He's all by himself, there's no band behind him, but he sticks to kind of a theme, he develops a theme. Now here's Buddy Rich. That is unmitigated noise. I know what I'm saying is heretical. Everybody else is buddy rich, but my God, it, it was just like, he, he's the reason doing stuff like that, that people who don't like drum solos don't like drum solos. And thus ends another probably unwelcome comment on drums. Piano. There are so many great piano players that I feel guilty a little bit only touching on two or three of them. One of my favorites and a truly great artist uh, was Bill Evans, 
who played with Miles Davis and then went on to do numerous albums and won awards. Um, but I'm going to save him for the last podcast on jazz. Here I'm going to talk about uh, just three people. Tatum, who is at Art Tatum, who's at the top of the list. We covered in the last uh, podcast. So I'm going to talk about Earl Hines, my dad's favorite pianist, and Hank Jones, and believe it or not, Nat King Cole on piano, not singing. First, uh, Nat King Cole. The story I read in Wikipedia was that he worked in a trio on piano. And one night in a bar, some drunk demanded or begged him or pleaded to to sing a song he liked. So he did. Everybody liked the singing, and it caught on, and so he went into singing and made lots of bucks singing. But he's a great piano player as well. Moonlight in Vermont. Beautiful chords, wonderful to listen to, beautiful stuff. Most people, again, are not aware that he was a really fine piano player before he started making money singing. Uh, Next, we're going to hear from a guy that isn't that popular but played all over the place, Hank Jones. And Hank Jones, who is one of the people I also heard at Lake Buena Vista Lounge, uh, I took my parents out to hear him. And Dad said, hey, give him a note. So I gave him a little note, and I gave it to Hank Jones. And and while Hank Jones came over to the table, the note read something like, the year was 1941, the place was Detroit. We played together. Hank Jones had moved to Pontiac, Michigan, which is, uh, well, I don't know, 20 miles outside of Detroit and close to where we uh, lived in Walt Lake. And he played there for a while, quite a while. After that, he he played with everybody. I mean, you can... He mainly backed up uh, people, including Frank Sinatra, The Ed Sullivan Show. A curiosity I just read about was that he played the piano behind Marilyn Monroe singing Happy Birthday, Mr. President, uh, to a guy that uh, she was pretty intimate with. If you're interested, look him up on uh, Wikipedia, and you will be amazed at how he got around. He played with everyone. I don't know the name of this tune. It was labeled as You Are Too Beautiful, but that's obviously not it. If you happen to know it, let me know.
this brings us to Earl Father Heinz. Earl Father Heinz. I'm going to read you something out of the Wikipedia because it says it much better than I ever could. He was one of the most influential figures in the development of jazz piano and, according to one source, one of a small number of pianists whose playing shaped the history of jazz. The trumpeter Dizzy Gillespie, a member of Heinz's big band, along with Charlie Parker, wrote, The piano is the basis of modern harmony. This little guy came out of Chicago, Earl Heinz. He changed the style of the piano. You could find the roots of Bud Paul, Herbie Hancock, all the guys who came after that. If it hadn't been for Earl Hines blazing the path for the next generation to come, it's no telling where or how they would be playing right now. There were individual variations, but the style of the modern piano came from Earl Hines. The pianist Lenny Tristano said, Earl Hines is the only one of us capable of creating real jazz and real swing when playing all alone. Horace Silver said, he has a completely unique style. No one can get that sound, no other pianist. Errol Garner said, when you talk about greatness, you talk about Art Tatum and Earl Hines. Quite a compliment, huh? In honor of this man, I'm going to play a five and a half minute, just under five and a half minute cut. I think you're going to see a lot of similarity between his style, what he does, and the way Art Tatum played. So here is Blues in Thirds.
he does so much in that the chords are surprising he does surprising little things that work kind of like Tatum did and I hope you enjoyed that because I sure did there are so many great pianists to uh, feature but I'll stop with those three because of time limitations I want to touch on a couple people that uh, I know you haven't heard of well I bet on it first is Peanuts Hucko that's peanuts like peanuts you eat and Hucko H-U-C-K-O he played this great clarinet my dad was always talking about him bragging about him and my dad was right he sounds his style sounds a lot like Goodman's and I, I put him up there with a good one he's, he's fantastic he played with Goodman's band and then he toured around and uh, he had a club in Denver for a while and he led the Glenn Miller Orchestra on a tour around the country in the 1970s as you listen to uh, this uh, track called Stealing Apples I know you can hear Goodman in his playing but he's, his style is a little bit different and just as great I think So what'd you think? Hako is uh, one of the unsung heroes uh, of those musicians, of millions of musicians over time that, that receives almost no recognition publicly, but deserves it. And now I'm going to feature one guitar player of all the guitar players. His name is George Van Epps. And he was described by my father as when he started playing, everybody else just stopped because they couldn't keep up with him. Not because of his speed, his chord structure and the way he played. This is from um, Van Epps spent most of his time as a studio musician and besides his great playing he did something unique he added a seventh string to the guitar an extra bass string so he could play below what the six string guitar allowed and as a curiosity he also played with Matty Matlock and also appeared in the film Pete Kelly's Blues you gotta catch that movie good stuff now let's listen to George Van Epps with Moon Glow followed by All the Things You Are, where he's accompanied by guitarist Howard Alden.
great chords, subtle, beautiful. I guess guitar is my favorite instrument. Okay, we're at 35 minutes, which gives us time to trash big bands. Yay! <laughs> now, a friend of mine asked me, weren't there big bands before 1940, before the war, before Glenn Miller and, and uh, Tommy Dorsey? Yes, there were bands that were big, but they weren't didn't have the, the big band schmaltzy sound, which allowed no improvisation. They were, in my friend's words again, the equivalent of Muzak. So wasn't Glenn Miller a great arranger? Of course he was. He's fantastic, a genius at, at arranging. But so was Maurice Ravel, and Maurice Ravel wasn't jazz. Beautiful? Absolutely. Great musicians? Yes. Arrangement can't be beat. Is it jazz? No. There's nothing spontaneous about it. There's nothing improvisational about it. Nothing new about it beyond Glenn Miller's ingenious arrangements. After the war, big bands lost favor, and there was kind of a fork in the road. One fork was based on big bands and dancing and popular stuff, and that led within 10 years to rock and roll. The other fork had musicians who wanted to improvise and something new, and that led to bebop. In either case, except for what you might think of as rogue bands like Stan Kenton and Woody Herman, jazz was pretty well done as it was seen in the 30s and early 40s. How bad was big band, quote, jazz? Listen to this. And that was Tommy Dorsey, one of the biggest bands uh, at the time. Boy, <laughs> I'm sorry, but I'm reminded of Lawrence Wilk. I really am. Where are the bubbles? Were there good bands at the time? Oh, yeah. Um, Stan Kenton came along in the late 40s, and Woody Herman was big in the late 30s, uh, right up until his death in 87. But neither led to a trend. They were part of a, an unraveling thread that was left over from the 30s and 40s.
Woody Herman's Thundering Herd from uh, 47 or 48. Woody Herman had a great band, and it was nothing like Tommy Dorsey. It still had energy, drive. That was Apple Honey. There's some other stuff I could have played, and I'd love to play it, but I'm running out of time. So, A word about Woody Herman in his later years. It turns out that his business manager was a complete idiot, and in the last few years of Herman's life, he owed the IRS millions of dollars, and from what I heard someplace, uh, Herman died, you know, penniless, like so many great artists, and uh, it's really a shame. Let's hear some Stan Kenton, who was big in the late 40s and early, all through the 50s. Eager Beaver, Stan Kenton. I promised a couple shows ago to play something where rock and roll picked up a little riff from jazz. Steely Dan is one of those groups, and they picked up something and used it in a piece called The Fez. Here's Stan Kenton. And here is Steely Dan.
Okay, the first piece was uh, Stan Kenton's probably most famous piece from the 50s called Artistry and Rhythm. And the second you heard was, of course, Steely Dan's The Fez. It's obvious to me where they got the theme. And you're thinking, how can I make such an absurd connection? Well, I saw a documentary interview with uh, Donald Fagan, and it talked about he talked about how much he, he loved jazz as a kid and grew up with it. And that was in the Stan Kenton era. So I have no doubt that he picked up the theme, which is a neat theme, from Artistry and Rhythm. Okay, where would this shallow survey of jazz over a period of decades be without uh, Count Basie? I've asked a few musicians over the years who they thought the greatest band of all time was, and they all, every one of them said Count Basie. It wasn't Ellington, it wasn't Goodman, it was Count Basie. It wasn't because he was such an outstanding pianist, although I heard he played really good piano. I haven't heard him play really good piano because he kind of uh, leads from the piano with some notes. But uh, his band is superb, and I think that's where his talent lay. One afternoon at home, I was listening to um, one of these you know, college jazz lab bands with their big band arrangements, and uh, it sounded pretty good, but it wasn't really good. And I, my father was standing there, and I said, why aren't these guys, they're playing the same arrangement as the big, as you know, the, the well-known groups, why aren't they as good? And he said, because they're not as precise their musicianship doesn't allow them to hit notes exactly where they belong. Well, that's what Basie's band did. It was precision, plus his marvelous arrangements, but mainly precision. Oh, did I mention beat? That was the band's main strength, beat. I said you can't hear it, but you can feel it. Tremendous beat.
why did I stop? I stopped because it goes on for another almost two minutes, and I, I've got to keep these shows close to an hour, and I want to play a long Duke Ellington cut at the very end. One final note about Basie. Uh, of everything said about him, the beat, his beat, the drive is always mentioned. One more quote from my old friend Wikipedia about Basie. He added touches of bebop so long as it made sense and he required that it all had to have feeling. Basie's band was sharing Birdland, which is a big bebop place, with such bebop greats as Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, and Miles Davis. Behind the occasional bebop solos, he always kept a strict rhythmic pulse, so it didn't matter what they do up front, he said. The audience gets the beat. And that pretty well sums up Count Basie. Okay, Duke Ellington, why was he so great? Another Wikipedia quote. Five reasons why Duke Ellington is one of the most important composers of the 20th century. Ellington always remained faithful to the roots of jazz music. Ellington elevated jazz to the ranks of serious music. He walked his own path without worrying about tastes and fashions. He performed along the biggest and the greatest. And Duke Ellington is placed among America's greatest composers. That's like everybody, classical everything. And finally, <laughs> he had a great band. And now it's time to say goodbye. Why? Because we like you. No, it's time to say goodbye for uh, until the next podcast when I actually will get to bebop. And I want to close with a something that should knock your socks off. The piece is 14 minutes long. It's from a 1956 album called Ellington at Newport. And one piece on it is called Diminuendo and Crescendo in Blue. I read that the audience became so enthusiastic and they were going crazy that on the album it's the last cut, but on the concert it's the second to the last piece performed. After he, his band played this, he played something slow to cool them down. You'll see why. And I'll see you next time on podcast number eight. And uh, feel free to stop this anytime you want to, but I think you probably want to listen to the whole, uh, whole cut. And now we would like to play some of our 1938 vintage, diminuendo in blue and crescendo in blue. These are separated by uh, an interval by Paul Gonzalez.
Thank you.